Welcome to Shoot Me Straight, Dave Fields. I'm here with John Wargo and Mike Devlin. Mike Devlin's a good buddy of mine. Uh, worked worked with me for a while in tech, and then now has moved on and is. I think you just got a promotion, didn't you? I think so. I think you could say that. I think I'd call that a demotion, kind of <laughs> something. <laughs> And he's done. He's done really well. He's one of the best front end guys that I know. And uh, John Wargo is CTO of Beast Code. How would you describe Beast Code, a company that works with military? Yeah, we're a DoD contractor mostly. We're starting to branch into private sector, but it's pretty much all government work right now. Gotcha. Do you have to get security clearance for that stuff? Yes. Yep. Mm. So, <clears throat> Mike has told me I'm going to skip. A little bit of your story. Mike's told me something up to 13. When you were 13 years old, you got a, you were working contract for the government? 15, close. 14, I did my interview so with the uh, <laughs> with a government contractor, and I started when I was 15 because they didn't want to hire me when I was 14. Gotcha. <laughs> Is that even legal? Uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it's some loophole. Maybe, right? Yeah, I mean, you can work at McDonald's. You could go work at a defense contractor. What's the difference? <laughs> How in the world did you land that? So that's kind of a long story. Um, my math teacher knew a guy who was working at that company, and I wrote a paper when I was in middle school as, like, part of a math test, and they were like, this is a really novel way of solving this problem. And she kind of held on to it for two years until I was a freshman in high school and then handed it to the guy and was like, you probably want to work with this kid. And the guy looked at it, and he's like, oh, yeah, we definitely want to work with this kid. I can't hire him, but I'll find someone who can. And he started reaching out to a couple of the contractors and basically told them, like, hey, you should interview this kid and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, so it was fun. Like, this kid's a savant. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, so have you always been great at math? Um, it just comes naturally? Ish. Like, I, I didn't like math in school, and I'm not particularly great at the academic side of it. Um, most people think of math, you think of numbers and like calculus and algebra type stuff. And I'm not necessarily great at that, but, um, logic has always been really good to me and solving like logic puzzles is really fun. Um, and there's ways that you can solve math problems without numbers a lot of times. And as soon as you start getting into that territory is really where I've found that I'm really good. Yeah. So were you, were you coding at all back then? Yeah, I'd been coding for quite a while at that point. I probably, well... Yeah, by the time I started, I think it was four years into programming. Um, I was just working on, like, a computer that I'd kind of taken apart and put back together. Um, it was just an old computer that my dad's friend had because my parents were sick and tired of me breaking the family computer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing that, and then I had, like, some breadboards and integrated circuits that I was just kind of messing with some low-level code onto. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is and still, like, when you were, like, 14, 15, younger? It's probably 12-ish at that point. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then, so when you got this contract job, um, how was that experience? So that was very strange for someone who's like a freshman in high school. Um, it was like three or four rounds of interviews, partly because they didn't know what the hell to do with me and partly because they had really bad, like, internal practices. Um, like, I had an interview with one guy, and he'd open with, like, do you know math? And I'm like, yeah, I could do math. I could do math. I could program. We could talk like some physics type stuff. And he's like, oh, this kid's really good. And he'd like had me off to the next guy who'd open with like, so you're 14? Like, do you know math? And I'm like, we've covered this. 
Um, but it was cool. We went through like several rounds of interviews and then the usual array of background checks, which was also really funny and strange for a 14 year old at the time. Um, the dude hit me up and I was just a smart ass at the time, probably still am. And he goes, you know, do you have anything you want to disclose to us? Cause it really doesn't matter that much what we find on the background check, as long as it's you that told us and not the company doing it. And I was like, yeah, you should know that I've like never paid a cent of taxes to the IRS before. And he just like looked at me. I was like, is that going to be a problem? And he's like, yeah, that's probably going to be an issue. And I was like, well, I told you about it. And he's like, well, that's a little bit different. Like, (laughs) it's going to be a problem. And I was like, well, I'm 14. Like, I don't think I should have. And he just looked at me and he was like, do you have anything really you want to (laughs) disclose? That's pretty funny. Um, But yeah, it was was fun. And then uh, I had to wait a little bit to start. And then I turned 15 and I started. And the first thing I got asked was, cool, so here's like a pile of documentation. Like, read through it. Let us know if there's like grammatical errors, if you can follow along. And if you know a little bit of math and you could code, that would be cool to follow along with it too. And I was like, we just did this for you. you know math. (laughs) By the way, do you know math? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wow. So you start digging through documentation and you start redlining stuff and – it would, they just given you that as something to just kind of test you on? I don't, th- I, I think there was just like a breakdown in communications and he got handed this like 15 year old and was told to do something with him. And he was like, I have no idea what this guy's like capable of doing. So here's a pile of documents. A worst case scenario, I get some red lines and oh, look, he can actually code. I guess that's good too. Yeah. Um, so that was fun. And then from there, if that's at 15, did you end up, working there till you graduated high school or was that short term? Uh, it was supposed to be long term and we ended up uh, leaving to make Beast Code about a year and a half, almost two years after that. Oh, wow. um, it was like me and six other people kind of just looked around at the culture and all the stuff I just told you and mm-hmm. we're like, yeah, we could probably do this a bit better. Yeah. Um, and so we naively just left and said, we'll figure out how to do this better. Wow. So that really kind of birthed some of the what Beast, Co- Beast Code is today. Yeah, that's kind of always been the culture is like, hey, we left to not be that like big defense contractor type thing. Part of it's, you know, we actually want to have our shit together and communicate. But a lot of it's just that small startup energy that we had of challenging the narrative. And what if we could do better? What if we could do it differently kind of thing? Yeah. And do you feel like y'all still maintain that startup energy? Yeah, it's it's definitely still there. Um, It's really fun. We kind of run it where we try to push down as much authority as we can to the teams and each of the development teams kind of just runs like a small company as much as they possibly can. A lot of them set their own work hours. We have dev teams that are like, we only want to work half days on Friday. So we're going to work 10 hours Monday through Thursday. Great. As long as you're getting stuff done, go be adults, go be autonomous and run the team however you want to. And let me know when you need help. Awesome. You find that model in um, leadership so much more empowering. You, do you get more out of it as part owner? Yeah, no, it's it's huge all the way around. Um, it's great when I can talk to people and like they usually don't even realize that I'm an owner, which is first of all like a huge compliment because I've been to tons of other companies where they're like, "This is our president," and everyone's practically like bowing down to him, and you're just like, "Really, dude? Like, what do you do?" And you like talk to people, and they're like, "Hi, I'm so and so. I'm the founder," and you're like, "Well, that's not a job title. That's not what you do. That's just a thing that you happen to be." It's like when I first met you, I kept hearing his name, and I was like, "Oh, sounds like somebody I should you know talk to." It's just knows a bunch of different stuff and we sat in lavender all the meeting rooms at beast code are named after pokemon cities by the way um <laughs> and uh yeah and after we were talking for a while i was like how did you even end up like at beast code and you're like oh i'm one of the owners and i was like 
Nice. <laughs> what? <laughs> How old are you again? Uh-huh. Um, no, it's it's been fun though. And you like talk with people, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, I love that we can just make this decision." And I'm like, "I like that you didn't ask me that you had to make that decision because that leaves me with time to actually go solve the problems that I need to solve." Gotcha. Um, so it's just a win-win all around. Now, I imagine with working with DOD contracts, like there's some things that you guys have to come in and make sure certain things are, I mean, like security-wise, like, or just making sure that it's not veering too far off a project. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely all on, like, there, there's guardrails in place, and everyone knows, like, hey, here's the boundaries that you have to play within. Um, but a lot of it is like, hey, try to make the boundaries like genuinely as big as possible. So if there's like a government requirement, we're going to put that in place. If there's industry standards requirements, we're going to put those in place. And I'll usually come in at the beginning and try to call out like, hey, here are going to be points of concern that you're going to have along the way. Try to have some foresight plan for them. Or here's this other team that's doing something similar, like try to do something to work together with them. Um, but that's a lot more around those constraints and a lot of engineering companies will run it the other way where they're like, no, this is how you will do it. Mm-hmm. And I try to call out the negative space of, no, here's how you're not going to do it. Like, mm-hmm. go be an adult, figure out anything that's within this area, just don't do the following things. Yeah. And that gives people places to learn. And people, by all means, people make mistakes. We try to make sure they don't make the big mistakes, but mistakes are still learning opportunities. And that's been some of the other really big points of gratification is to look at the people who've been with us for four or five years and they like come through those mistakes and you let them make decisions. And in the moment you're like, yeah, this is going to be a real big pain in the ass now, but you learned a lot coming out of it. And that's now like someone who's vested in the company because you gave them the authority to do that. And then when they inevitably make that mistake, you help them through it and you teach them instead of just yelling at them and, you know, trying to burn them for it. Yeah, for sure. No politics, like right. Political stuff. There's, uh, like, what kind of stuff have you guys made? I mean, I know in general, but how would you classify it? Like, what kind of applications do you guys make or deliverables? Yeah, so the uh, the big thing that we typically focus on is, like, data aggregation, which is kind of a broad field, but the idea is that you might have a whole bunch of information in one place that say, like, engineering documentation about, hey, I have all the dimensions of this room and how it was all put together and what the fasteners are. And then I might have a totally separate piece of information somewhere else about, like, the materials in this room and firefighting procedures. Mm-hmm. And it's insane to me when those aren't, like, in the same place. <laughs> and you're, like, trying to describe to someone, like, hey, here's how you're going to fight a fire in this room, but it's not next to the rest of the information that would, like, actually put that in context. Mm-hmm. And so it's that contextual awareness and bringing all those data sources together into one place that we've really found a lot of success in. Yeah, we do um, a lot of work with the Navy. So we'll do, like, surface ships. We've done platforms for the Air Force, like aircraft as well. We okay. do a lot of modeling and simulation. Okay. Um, we're starting to break into, like, the private sector. We've done like data centers and server rooms for them as well. Um, and like I said, a lot of it is just trying to let people visualize data because someone will be like, here's the server rack that we have and we have 3D models of it in one place, but it's really hard to follow the cables in the 3D model and figure out how these blades are connected and where does this cable end up going somewhere else. And they have a functional diagram sitting off to the side that says, oh no, these two things are connected like this. But then if you're the guy who you're like, hey, go unplug this cable, well, now you're back to needing the 3D model because that actually shows you where the cable is. Mm -hmm. 
And so being able to link those two things together mm. has just been really valuable. So one person can say, hey, here's how they're linked. Go unplug this cable. And the guy can just click on it and say, show me the 3D model. And it says, oh, that cable's in server 42 Bravo, which is right here. And when you open it up, it's the cable on the right that connects blades five and seven. And mm. you go unplug it. That's got to be really tough. Um, and I know I'm not meaning for this podcast to go down a super nerdy road, but I don't see how it can't. <laughs> have that um, effect on people. Yeah, it like that's got to be tough because those are, you probably get some very different types of data. It's all over the place. And the not going down the nerdy rabbit hole is actually one of the big challenges that we have internally because we'll get people that don't realize the data or don't realize the ask. Mm -hmm. There's a joke that, um, there's a joke in the software engineering community that a comma can make the difference between an intern's project and a PhD thesis. Mm -hmm. And it's like that fine line is, you know, a bit exaggerated there, but it's still true. You'll get people who are like, hey, can you link these two things together? And you're like, yeah, probably. Like, what do you have? And they're like, oh, we have 3D models and a database. And you're like, yeah, totally. I could put those things together. The computer already knows what A is. It knows what B is. I just have to tell it what the links are, which isn't trivial, but it's totally doable. And you'll get someone else who's like, hey, I have those same documents, but they're like scanned in on a scanner. And you're like, oh, that's going to be a much harder problem now. And they're like, why? It's it's still documents in a database. And you're like, yeah, but those are pictures of documents. Like you don't actually have the text in those documents and trying to get them to understand the difference when two PDFs look exactly the same, but I can click and drag and highlight the text in one. And it's just mm -hmm. a picture of a PDF in the other one. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and is that been a problem? Like trying to communicate that with non-technical people? Um, yeah, it's, it's typically a problem. Um, and quite frankly, especially on the government side, oftentimes they don't even know what they have. So they'll just be like, hey, we have this platform. Can you, like, visualize it for us? And we're like, sure, but, like, visualize it how? Do you want a 3D representation? Do you want a flowchart? Like, how do you want it visualized? And they're like, well, I don't really know what we're going to do with it. And you're like, well, if you don't know what you're going to do with it, I certainly can't tell you what we could do for you. And you, like, talk them through that. And they're like, yeah, I think this flowchart type thing is the best way. And you're like, cool, what kind of data do you have? And they're like, I don't know. I have to go ask this other company what kind of data we have. Yeah. <laughs> and it just takes forever. And then half the time they realize that someone has that data, but they don't have the rights to it or it's in not in the right format that they thought it was or. Yeah, for sure. There's a ton of pitfalls with. <laughs> so, so what about on the other side though, where you have, and especially as you get into the private sector, I think, I don't know about the government side, but I know on the, on the private sector, you'll have clients or customers that they don't even realize what the best, like what they can do or what they should do or best practice or like, they'll just be like, Hey, I just, I just want this, you know? And you're like, okay, like we can do that. But like, why would you do that? If like you can use some machine learning or a, like you could do something so much better. Do you have that opposite yet? Yeah, we've, we've had that both in the private sector and a little bit in some of the forward-leading areas of the government as well. Um, sometimes you do just need people to dream a little bit bigger where they're like, hey, cool, so I have the 3D models and I have tech docs. Like, cool, we're good to go now. And you're like, well, hold on, you have them, but they're like linked together in this repository that knows how to link information. And mm -hmm. the product we have is like this open standards product where people can put more data in. And if it's annotated in the right way, it just folds in with everything else. Yeah. And you're like, this is this is the beginning. You can now you now have the data to train an AI. Like yeah. yesterday, you had the data, but you could never train an AI on it because it's not in the right formats. It doesn't line up. You don't know where it's at. 
Whereas now that it's even in one place and it's readable, you could start to train AI on it. You could start to get into predictive analytics. You could start to get into a lot of these other fields. Yeah. Um, and getting them to realize that that's even an option is interesting. And then sometimes you're telling them to slow down. Like, yeah. We had a. Do you a, translate a lot in your head where you're like, okay, how do I? Yeah. Like, what's an analogy I could use to I, help? And, and what's tough is sometimes on those analogies, I've run into this a lot. It's like, you, you, you want to give a good an analogy to someone on technical to so that they can just grasp, like, a concept. But even the technical side of you is like, that's not exactly accurate, this analogy. And so, but you're like, it's good enough so that they can understand the concept. Yep. No, that's that's definitely a huge challenge. That's something, uh, the whole social side of it was something I fought for for years um, I mean, I was obviously super nerdy and introverted in high school and you go work in a government contractor where <laughs> you don't have the normal like social experiences of other people. You know, a lot of people are out, figure out how to deal with people and navigate the whole social thing. I'm sitting in a security briefing with my security officer who's like, if you meet someone and they ask you these questions, I need you to raise your hand and don't say another word to them. And <laughs> <laughs> so trying to figure out like how to navigate that whole social side took a long time. And that's definitely been one of the big things I focused on is trying to be that bridge between the technical side and the non-technical side. And yeah, it's, it's exactly like you said, you're giving them analogies and you're trying to set them up for success, but also trying not to sit there and explain something for 30 minutes. So yeah. a lot of it's like give them something and then say nothing and see what their next thought is. And if their uh -huh. next thought is this, you can kind of put the guardrails back up and steer them back on the right track. And if their next thought is over there, you're like, cool. Yeah. Keep going in that direction. And yeah. that's, um, a good, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good word for it. I mean, I think of like what you said earlier is, hey, you think you have data, but what you really have here could be a framework, right? right. That that can do 10 times more than the things that you're thinking of. And in the future would help you with stuff that you didn't even think of. But like when you're trying to explain something technical to someone, sometimes when people say, hey, like, what do you do? I'll just be like software or computers or, and then if they ask more about it, then I'll be a little bit more specific. And mine's not near as technical as you guys, so. No, it's it's usually the exact same approach. I tell people, like, yeah, I'm a software engineer. I write code. And then half the time they're like, oh, can you hook my printer up? And no, I, <laughs> I don't know what your printer is. Like, my, my dad hit me up over the weekend, and he's like, I'm staring at this app on an iPad. How do I use this app? And I'm like, I've never seen that app before in my life, and I'm driving, and this is over a phone call. I couldn't tell you how to use that app any better than you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, so so I have some questions with you around like your thoughts around have you have you talked to many people just around AI? Just people that are non technical and their fears around AI. Yeah, I've run kind of the full spectrum and it's really funny that you throw like non technical people out specifically because AI is such a, a weird place because it's almost it's an its own discipline. And you'll get software engineers who like know traditional software stacks and they know a lot about computers, but they'll have the same fears as what you normally would say non-technical people because they're not really technical in the sense of AI. They're in a different specialization entirely. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times it's more similar than it is different. Yeah. What, what do you think about some of the fears? Do you think a lot of that stuff is unfounded or just like, oh, they're taking everyone's jobs? They're I... I mean, it's hard to say. So I think a lot of it will depend on 
It's going to depend on a lot of things. So off the bat, I'll say that I, th- I personally think there's a lot less to worry about than what most people kind of think up in their heads. But I also think the devil's in the details. And there are a lot of things that we should be worried about that no one's even like realized is a thing yet. Yeah. Um, like what? <laughs> <laughs> I had a note actually that I took yesterday. What was it? Um, Oh, there was a whole thing about a use for AI that I went, oh, that's clever. Never thought of that. That's going to be a problem. Um, you see it a lot in a, in different legal arguments that come up, right? So a lot of people think um, if I don't use an AI, you know, it's kind of I'm avoiding most of the risk associated with it. Mm-hmm. And that's true, but only to a point. And it's come up in a couple of recent court cases. Um, but to kind of start back on the premise, I think out loud a lot. So a lot of people are scared of AI and they don't use it because they're scared of it. And usually they're afraid of getting misinformation. They're afraid of their data getting given to the government or given to big tech and they don't want to be trained on. And they've got a variety of fears that drive them away from using AI, which kind of creates this negative feedback loop of, well, if you're not going to use it, you're never going to understand it and you'll always just be scared of it. And the more popular it becomes, the more scared you're going to be. Um, But the counterpoint is that you also aren't even mitigating a lot of those fears when you don't use it. Um, There was a gentleman in Pennsylvania that currently has a lawsuit out against OpenAI because people were punching his name into ChatGPT. I think he was running for some government position and they were like asking ChatGPT questions about him, which first and foremost is like the wrong way to use that platform. Please don't do that. Um, It's great at a lot of things, but not at that. Um, And ChatGPT was telling people that he was a convicted terrorist, (laughs) which was, like, obviously really bad for his career and caused quite a stir, especially given that he wasn't and he, like, didn't use AI products and wasn't on them. And so it just highlights the fact that, like, hey, you can't just sit back and avoid all of the risk. There's going to be risk whether or not you're in the game. So at some extent, you might as well get in the game and at least understand that risk better instead of just trying to say, I'm scared of it, I'm not going to use it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like, and I think I think of when you talk about AI, you can't just, I mean, it's like it would be similar to saying, you know, I'm fearful of transportation or something. Right. Like It's like it's such a broad, you're just like, wait, are you not scared of transportation? I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very scared of it. Yeah, a I've lot more scared of transportation than AI. It's <laughs> probably more likely to kill you. <laughs> but, I'm like, it's just such a broad category that I don't necessarily know what people are thinking when they say that. And it's like, okay, you, you, you almost have to ask a deeper question after that. No, that's a really good point. I've used, a, like, physics is a similar sort of umbrella topic where people are like, AI is going to change the world. And you're like, physics is going to change the world. But the answer to both is, well, of course it is. Have you seen how big it is? How many like sub-disciplines there are? And yeah. by definition, as soon as someone goes, could I solve this problem with AI? That's a new field of AI now. Like, yeah. Uh, for um, sure. And it's been around for forever too. Like I've had a bunch of people who are like, I don't want to use it. I'm just scared of it. And you're like, do you boot up Windows? And they're like, yeah, okay, well you're using AI because there are Bingo. bits of machine learning and AI and Windows and your phone and all of these things, and there have been for decades. Yeah, um, It's just this type of AI that we're seeing nowadays is new. Yeah, like yeah. I don't want models being trained off my stuff. It's like, they already are. Yeah. yeah. They have they been for years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Facebook, Snapchat, you're already out there. I've got a few friends who like aren't on social media, and they're like, no one has anything on me. And it's like, well, hold on. If I was the government, I was really going to try to 
make a, a, a database of people's faces to train an AI on, right? I'm not going to go after your pictures that are taken in a bar where the lighting's off and it's from a weird angle and there's five other people in it. Maybe none of them are even you because it's a picture of I hung out with the friends last night. It's I'm going to try to you know, get a database of pictures where it's taken straight on with like perfect lighting and you're the only one in the photo and I've confirmed that it's you and like all of these prerequisites and they're like, well, I'm glad that doesn't exist. And it's like, do you have a driver's license? Yeah. <laughs> well, not yeah. only that, like, like we, me and my wife and kiddos went to Universal Studios a month ago and we're, we're going to check in. And so we have badges that have our pictures on them. But when we go to check in to to get through the gate, you have to thumbprint. And so I'm like, okay, now Universal Studios has a database of my picture, my full name, and my thumbprint, you know? And it's yep. like, and all those, you talk about aggregation, like all those data sets, or I mean, anytime that that happens, like you're in a database somewhere that's accessible by some people. Yep. At the least, so that's that's just the world we live in, for better or for worse. And there's some really interesting like cyber practices. You throw out the thumbprint. I've seen Disney do similar things with like rides and fast passes and stuff like that that they don't want people sharing. And their claim, which makes sense, is that they don't actually store necessarily a picture of your thumbprint. They store what's called a hash or a signature of yep. it. And it's a four-digit hash that's, like, relatively unique. I mean, you could probably find thousands of collisions a day on it, but the odds of the two of us having a, the same hash are one in 1,000 at that, or one in 10,000 at that point. Yeah. Um, and that would be good cyber practice if they did that, because yeah. then if they do get hacked, they're not leaking personally identifiable information and all these other categories of data. But to you and I, we don't know that they're actually doing that or that yeah. all of their subcontractors are doing it that way or that the whole system's vetted that way. And that's one of the uh, the interesting challenges in the world. And that's one of the big reasons why people are scared of AI is that lack of transparency. Mm -hmm. but that's not an AI problem. That's a social problem. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, now you're you're breaching off into like security stuff with sec with security. What are your thoughts around, like, financial institutions and their tech, especially older financial, like, banks, older banks, their practices? Like, to me, I think some of the things that we focus on and some of the big things in the news aren't the things that um, that that are fearful to me. I'd be fearful of a 1970s bank that's holding lots of money and they have outdated systems across the board with vulnerabilities in them yeah it gets it gets really hard and i'm not in the finance sector so i'm going to speculate a little bit with you sure um it's it's a very different world and i'm going to i'm going to kind of leverage what i know with the dod because they're similar to a point they're both high security environments that handle lots of sensitive data now the types of data they handle are very different and the types of people who target those institutions are very different um but a lot of times we focus a lot on like the cloud-based AI models of, hey, I want systems that are super patched with the latest drivers, the latest operating systems, all of everything. I'm going to make sure that all of my users have, you know, XYZ credentials to be able to get into the system and everything is audited. And you're focused a lot on that like external factor. But in a lot of environments, especially high security environments, those aren't necessarily the same protocols that you have because you might be operating a computer network that's not connected to the internet. And if you're not connected to the internet, 
you could spend a lot of your time making sure that operating systems are totally patched and software applications are up to date and there's like you're on top of everything and that's still like vitally important but it changes your profile because if you're doing those things but that's not actually how people are going to break into your system Mm -hmm. you're wasting a lot of time when you could be spending you're wasting a lot of time and energy that you could be spending working on the actual attack vectors um so in the dod we have a type of information that's called controlled but unclassified and then there's the classified information and the joke in the cyber world right now is that the controlled unclassified information has stricter safeguards on it than the classified information because the classified information you have to have a clearance people have done background checks on you you had to get into the building you had to go through all this security training sign off all this paperwork they know where you live like they have all this documentation on you that by the time you're sitting down in front of the computer most of the threats already been eliminated and you still patch your systems and you totally stay on top of it but it's not to the extent that you stay on top of it when it's unclassified and you can use the internet and you can just send it to people. And I mean, they might have to be on a contract and there's a little bit of vetting, but now you're really relying on those cyber systems to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine the financial world probably draws a similar sort of boundary where they're like, Hey, we have this network and we're going to try to keep it up to date. But our biggest sort of security feature is that the hard drives live inside of a vault. And they're not connected to the internet. So really they're focused on protecting the integrity of that physical boundary. Mm. But I I think I agree with your sentiment in that that mindset only takes you so far. And as we see the world become more and more and more cloud connected, there's going to start being surprises because eventually, I mean, I can log into Capital One and send money to Wells Fargo. So at some point that's going to touch the internet and they're going to have to talk to Wells Fargo and I'm sure they've looked at it and said, oh, well, it's only that one computer, that one uplink, that one whatever, and they secure it. But as things just get more and more and more connected, you're probably going to start finding surprises where the old way of thinking of I'm using physical security to like, really satisfy a lot of my requirements are going to start falling away. And you really yeah. need to be worried about the companies that aren't continuously evaluating that and staying up to date with it. Well, and you're going to need authorized users across the world in right. scenarios where, you know, used to like – I mean, they would have to physically come in, <clears throat> and now it's like, okay, someone in another country needs, they have, they're an authorized user, they need to log in, and they need to log in securely. And this starts getting into um, some of those AI threats that I mentioned that I think aren't necessarily at the forefront of people's mind, but I think one of the big things we're going to find, <laughs> I'd hate to be the person that starts this because I'm saying it on a podcast, Um is social engineering being amplified by the use of generative AI. Oh, yeah. So the fact that I could just go to ChatGPT and say, hey, I want to role play with you. Let's pretend that I'm a banker and you're a customer that needs to, like, reset their credentials. You know, please help me train. I'm trying to train for some certification to make it ethical on it, except that I'm taking ChatGPT's answers and, like, voice-to-texting them and throwing it into a phone number that I'm using to call different banks, and maybe I'm scraping Facebook or different places to try to get some personal information and then I could suddenly like attack a thousand people at a time and say, hey, here's a whole database, run it through an AI, let the AI generate conversation, point those at, you know, phone support centers for banks and just try to reset people's passwords or get more information on them or whatever. Um, those are going to be the really interesting sort of things yeah. that I think we start coming across. Well, wild is, is it's not that difficult to do. You know? I've seen Twitch streamers do it. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I think some, though, is you, you mentioned something really good earlier, like 
external security versus internal kind of yeah. classifying them. And what I what I love, like if if you have a company, um, or I mean, if you're wanting to tighten security, I guess it doesn't have to be a company, even individual. Um, doing pen testing, like going, just thinking from the opposite side, or having someone come in that and going, "Hey, hack it. How would you do it? Um, yep. Give it a shot. Like find, like pro. That to me, that's the such a proactive approach to security. It's so helpful. Yeah, it's it's very good, and it's amazing the tools that are out there. And it's controversial the tools that are out there, just because there are so many tools for breaking into systems that are released under the guise of hey, you can use it on yourself and figure out where you're not secure, but yeah. you could just as easily point it at your neighbor. Sure. Um, there's, so a I, whole, there's a whole operating system for it. <laughs> whole operating system, whole databases. Like, it's insane what's out there. But, yeah, if, if you're definitely looking to do that, um, there's definitely a lot out there. But the first step in cybersecurity is typically to, like, identify what you're protecting. Because usually it's not I want to protect everything because that's just not feasible, right? Unless you're a company and you legitimately are just that big and that powerful. Um, and then the next step is to identify, like, who's taking it. So I, I know a lot of people who are, like, into cybersecurity. They're like, I don't want my information out there. I don't want to be doing all these things. And they'll, like, host all their data on hard drives at home because they don't trust the cloud. And then they'll, like, Snapchat their location. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you just Snapchat it at your concert for three days. Someone could just break into your house while you're out of town. Yeah. Like, all of that <laughs> security posturing just to announce that you're not at home for three days. Yeah. Um, which again comes back to what are you protecting and who are you protecting it from? Are Good you... internal security, bad external. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Interesting. I <clears throat> I think there. I think the other side of that though is AI, um, machine learning, modeling. Like there is so much cool stuff that's going to come out of it too. Oh, it's it's legitimately a tool, and it can be used for good or for bad. And I think it's going to be fantastic just to see what comes out of it there's so many directions it could go in especially as the different fields of ai mature like generative ai i think is what you're talking about specifically and um i've started using it pretty regularly i've got stable diffusion running on my server at home and it's like anytime i need a picture boom it's there like i don't have to go to a stock photo site and try to find the one i'm looking for and go well that's kind of close but let me bring it to photoshop like nah stable diffusion Give me a picture of a wooden background because I need a billboard for, or not a billboard, like a mission board for a video game. Boom, wooden background, done. Like, yeah. easy day. The funny thing is, John actually isn't even here. This is an AI modeled version of him. Absolutely. There is no John. <laughs> there is no John. <laughs> I am, I'm in your imagination. <laughs> That's awesome. Did, did so, y'all see some of like the open AI like updates that they just put out? Which one specifically? Yeah, they had their... Apple event of sorts, and uh, I was seeing how they have, like, the build-your-own GPT kind of stuff. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and... Um, they chat GPT for Turbo now, too. Yeah, yeah. It, what I found, like, interesting is all these people are, they're upset, but also excited, because I guess with the, the build-your-own GPT stuff, people for a while have been building these platforms using OpenAI API to build all these things to be able to do on your own easier than just using chat GPT, and now you can just literally go on there and make it like oh i need something that writes you like blog posts like with like these keywords or whatever easy like people put all this effort in building this shit and they're like well open ai just put us out of business so yep 
it's it's a very volatile market. It's been compared to the gold rush, right? Where it's like if you're going to be a company that goes after AI specifically and is generating an AI product, you're very much taking the risk of a prospector because there's so many places where you could fail along <coughs> the way and never make it out west for the sake of the analogy. Or you could get True. there and build this product and no one comes. Or you could be the one dude who strikes it rich. Um, but even if you look back then, the people who made the most money were those selling Levi jeans and pickaxes, not the people who were actually going to the gold rush. Mm. Wonder what the Levi so, jeans of AI is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you need to be asking if you yeah. want to make money. I'm gonna ask ChatGPT. <laughs> what What do you think is like one of the most uh, first? For someone who is n not necessarily technical, but they go, hey, I want to utilize AI in my business, what would you say? You're like, hey, just use ChatPT to write copy for you for your website and blog posts, would you say? Yeah, there's a few. So ChatGPT is pretty good just with, like, generating texts. Um, I like it for small ideas because it – legitimately just is that chat format they'll even sort your conversations into different uh different bins now which is really fun and so it's like hey if i need a name for a newsletter i'll just go to chat gpt hey here's the kind of theme that i want give me some names and i'll give you 10 and you might not use any of them but it's enough to get that thought going um fixes what people call like the blank page syndrome where you're just staring at a blank sheet of paper and you're like oh god the first idea is the hardest yeah. um Google's AI, I'm actually a pretty good fan of as well because they train, obviously, on, like, the Google Index. Yeah. yeah. And it tries to, like, cite its sources. And I'm going to throw an asterisk behind that, that AI doesn't really have intent. It's not trying to lie to you. It's not trying to cite its sources. It just does because that's what it's engineered to do. But it does a pretty decent job of it where you'll ask it a question. It'll, like, give you a nice summary and then be like, here are three links if you want to learn more. And then you can, like, actually make sure that those links are, like, verifying what it says because that's always the big problem is um, how do you know that it's giving you factual information and the challenge to that argument is how do I know Devlin's giving me factual information like you shouldn't blindly trust people and you shouldn't blindly trust AI and I'm hoping that's some something that becomes a more common theme because I think we'll be better just as a society if we learn to like fact check each other more and actually make sure you know where your information's coming from and I think that people are blindly trusting AI highlights a uh a bias that we just blindly trust people probably more than we should. Yeah. I, I trust AI more than Devlin. I'll tell you that. I, right I now. second that. I would trust you more than Devlin, and I met you 10 minutes ago. <laughs> I, I only trust AI. So, you know. That's funny. No, but that, that whole like just blindly trusting things, I feel like, is just an issue in general. Like you watch like social media and people, you know, get fed what they're interested in, and people can just spit out whatever they want. And then they take it as fact. And, I mean, I saw a thing the other day where it's like, um, what's not Unity, what's the other one? Unreal. Unreal. Um, <coughs> there was, like, a scene made in Unreal Engine, like the new one. And uh, it was, like, buildings burning and, like, you know, fires and all this stuff. And it was put out as it was, like, part of this war that's going on. Um, and then there was a follow-up and it was like, hey, this was actually built in Unreal uh, and was kind of like a test or something like that. And it was like... And people can just put stuff out there, create things, because it's getting much more real. And people will just be like, wow, this is awful, this is terrible, or this is great, or whatever, and without even checking, you know? Yep. Yeah. I think so. there was there was one case where, with the Israel-Palestinian war... I thought that's where you were going with that. Well, that's where I was going with it. That's, I mean, that's where it was, but yeah. Yeah, they had a... They had a I 
think someone that was really prominent, I think he was a Hamas leader that was saying like uh, he was now like pro-Israel or something like that. I, I don't know. I, I Don't quote me on that. <laughs> like fact check that, please. But it's the theme uh, <laughs> of the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but it like I can totally see that. I mean, you can literally, and, and that's one of the big things I think with the industry, the music, movie industry. Yeah, one of their uh, their picketing is going, "Hey, that my rights and not using AI, AI to generate commercials, promotions, all that stuff." Yeah, it's. It'll be very interesting. And then some of that, too, comes down to enforcement because the whole point of AI is it's a black box. So even if we had laws that says, hey, you know, you can't train it on these things, you can't really prove that it was trained on those things unless you get the training data set. Because if you just have access to the AI and the weights, that doesn't tell you what it was trained on. So you can't prove the legality of the training set unless you get it. And that starts getting into uh, some interesting topics in our legal system. Um, because typically right now you have to provide, you know, some sort of reasonable evidence in order to theoretically subpoena that training data set, but you might not have reasonable evidence. Well, and even laws, laws are so far behind with tech, you know, um, when I started, uh, Repbox, we were, we were trying to figure out, okay, what sales tax do I pay? Like, do I have to pay? So, and so I would call the state, I'd call the city and then even federal and trying to figure out like, okay, do I pay where my customer lives? Do I pay their sales tax? Do I pay, where's the nexus of tax? You know, and I get three, four different answers. Yeah, it's, you know, it's nuts. And then you say, okay, well, let's go try to fact check it. Well, are you going to believe a fifth opinion on the internet or do you go try to like go to the federal and state code? Cause those codes aren't readable. You're not going to find your information there. Dude, and they're, well, they're outdated. <laughs> Yes. You know, and so it's like wherever the database lives, and it's like, well, like. That's not how that works anymore. <laughs> like, what AWS zone it's in? Like. What if I don't know? What if it moves? What if I've got multiple? Exactly. Like, and yeah. <clears throat> I think there's that, but like you mentioned the thing of enforceable. So, I mean, think of crypto, right? The crypto world in the last five years. Mm-hmm. Jeez, like how much, how many like crimes have gone on in the crypto world that and i don't see how they can enforce it well that's that's half the problem with crypto is it's by design like decentralized and if it's supposed to be hey it's decentralized there's no government there's no oversight well that sounds great on paper until someone steals your information and you know you fall victim to a scam even if they didn't steal your information and you clicked on a button and sent the dude you know 20 bitcoin and you're like oh shit i need that back well Hey, guess what? There's no oversight. You're not going to get back. That yeah. was the design of the system. Yeah. And even with, like, some of the rug pulls. With crypto, with Bitcoin, I'm like, hey, like, you know, you know you send it, like, yeah, you better get your, whatever you send it for, like, you, you better make sure that that transact, that's up to you. But, like, some of the other ones where they would make false claims, all that, and it's a rug pull. It's like, well, they had a great Twitter account. It's like, <laughs> it, literally, just straight scam Ponzi's, like you know, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, he had a nice X profile picture of an ape. I knew he was trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. Had all these followers, but was yep. probably fake followers. Yep. <laughs> it's gonna be an interesting world, man. Uh, especially, uh, I'm the next ten years. I'm looking forward to some, but like also. 
I think there should be a balanced view of it, though, because there. I mean, I think some incredible things can happen from it, especially if if people open up to go, "Hey, it's here. It's been here. Um, how can we use this in good ways?" Um, I think it can be really good at, um, for instance, it, it could be really helpful in catching like child predators or stuff like that. Um, but also at the same time, like be cautious of of where we go with it and how we enforce it and legalize and like all that part of it, how we control it. Yeah, it gets very tricky. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's tools and tools aren't good or bad. They are used by people with good or bad intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a paper I saw that outlined from a while ago how um, back when classification AI was coming up, so like AI that does facial recognition or object detection and just finds patterns and images, um, there was like a really funny thing because immediately people called out like the law enforcement use case of it. And they're like, Oh God, this is going to enable like a shadow state and a shadow government. And China is going to use it to track all of their citizens everywhere 24 seven. And there's all these concerns about it. And I mean, the China one panned out, but that's kind of a, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a gimme. <laughs> like, yeah. of course they're going to do that. But one of the fascinating things was like, Hey, we weren't like overly scared of it. We didn't say, no, this is a thing you should never do. And now there's like papers that are coming out where that same classification AI is being used to like screen people for skin cancer. And it's like, oh, wouldn't that be fascinating? Like if you could just take a picture of yourself every week and it's like, here's your risk profiles for different things. And um, especially if, you know, that information probably isn't going to be digestible to us anytime soon, but it goes to your doctor and your doctor can start looking, you know, pairing photos together and maybe he notices trends between them or the AI can pull them out and like... Mm -hmm. Um, that yeah. would be an incredible tool. And it just goes to show that people tend to default towards that pessimistic view because outside of the gimme that was the China use case, we thankfully have yet to see a shadow government police state arise that's using facial recognition to do all that. But we are starting to see AI start to help crack away at solving cancer. Yeah, um, I think the medical community cool. is going to like get, can use it a lot. I think there's a lot of opportunities for, I mean, like your experience in being a startup that has grown and been successful and now going into the private area, like there's so many opportunities for tech guys, non-tech guys to band in together and starting companies in medical and financial and security. Like there's a lot of opportunities there. Yeah, it's really fun. And that's like one of the things you look at um, Stability AI. They've got like a mission statement that they put out. And their whole thing is they they view AI as like sort of a tool that creates this equilibrium where right now there's they view that there is like this disproportionate spread of knowledge where there's some people who've like gone through all of this effort in R and D programs in college to like gain this knowledge, but they typically exist inside of companies and the companies wall them off because they're a competitive advantage and then you end up with just these silos that are Google and Apple and Microsoft that just try to have the knowledge and keep as much as they can for themselves. And, you know, the layperson doesn't have access to 80% of the tools that they have. Like we're talking earlier about, oh, if I want to make sure I'm secure, I can go grab this pen testing OS, load up this database and just run all the CVEs against all my computers and see what the hell comes up. Like most people don't know half those acronyms. And they're like, AI can be 
sort of a tool that creates this equilibrium again where, oh, you don't know those acronyms. We'll throw it into AI and say, hey, ChatGPT, explain to me like I'm a five-year-old this sentence. And it's like, it's really good at that. It'll give it to you and say, oh, imagine you're this and this other thing happens. And That's 90% of the things I ask it to do. Explain it to me like I'm five because that's how I feel. Probably <laughs> specifically things I said exactly. in a conversation with me. This is pretty much, yeah, just take <laughs> your Slack messages and say, help. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't even gotten to the psychology aspect of yeah. <laughs> mental health yeah. and AI. True. That's an interesting topic for sure. Yeah. Um, Can but yeah. You, here's Devlin. Fix him. <laughs> you broke the AI. <laughs> <laughs> that, that will break the AI. 404. <laughs> oh, man. Dude, well, John is awesome. Awesome having you here. What um, What's your plans going forward what's your plans with beast code where you guys are you said going into private what do you, what's like the next five years y'all are hoping to do so that's an interesting question um i'm gonna prefix this with we used to have meetings in like the february march time frame about hey how do we think this year's gonna go and then we'd recap it like the september november time frame um and we were wrong for like the first six years in a row, we just stopped having them. And we're like, okay, evidently we can't plan a year out because opportunities are constantly coming up. We're like on our toes. We're an agile company. So we're just going after whatever makes sense. Uh, in general, our strategy is to try to diversify. We've, we've got a really good product that we think has dual use in both the private sector and DOD. It says really what we want to try to capitalize on. So our goal is like over the next five years to branch into the private sector, but not just as a product, but like, as a framework and almost as I'm going to say a mentor for lack of a better word, that sounds pretentious though. But um, the whole point is we're trying to create this open architecture, open ecosystem around data aggregation and especially the human machine interface portion of it. Okay. And so we've got a couple of uh, partners right now. We, I recently did a hackathon in Orlando with unity and we're like, Hey, what would it look like if we took your rendering engine game engine and dropped it into our product and look at all these new things that you can do with it. And we've got a partnership with Momentum where they're like, Oh, we want to train our people on how to use it and see how we can fold it into existing programs and like, just try to turn it into more of a platform and more of, I'm going to say a cultural way of thinking about data, thinking about those kinds of problems as opposed to just, Oh, we have this cool product and I can sell it to the DOD and make money. Sure. Yeah. So, so is it, is your go to market strategy like, so to have the open source side of it and then do commercial work? Yes. The, the plan for us, and right now we're only at a open architecture. So the application itself is closed source, but it's all open standards. Like every feature that we do in the application, there's a standard somewhere that says, Oh, if you want to add a details pane there, you want to add a button, you want to do a thing. There's a way for you to come in and add it yourself. And a lot of our strategy right now is just to leverage those partners. Um, the word I always come back to is impact. Like people ask me what motivates me and it's impact. Um, and on the DOD side, that impact is fantastic because if I can just affect our national readiness by 1% with my company, fantastic. That's, that's well worth my time. Um, but then, uh, you, you know, you start thinking about even just that problem. That's like not even looking at the private sector part of it. Even if we just look at DOD, we're 200 people of Fort Walton Beach and we're a force to be reckoned with, but we're not changing every single asset the military owns with 200 people. And so that's where those partnerships really start coming into play. Hey, what if I could partner with a company that does AI really well? What if I could partner with a company like Amentum that has 50,000 employees and has like a lot of contacts and they're in a position where they really could make a dent in that. And we're in a position to enable them. 
Um, and I think the, the strategy on the private sector looks very similar. Of I don't know that we're necessarily going to be the company that comes in and says, hey, you know, here's my product. You should totally use it. It'll solve your problems. There's definitely use cases where that happens and we're picking those up. But I try to look at the wider aperture of like, hey, who can we partner with on the private sector that probably could have a nice like integration with our platform that and then invites other people to have similar integrations so that we can together have a huge impact. Interesting. Have you thought about it more from like even so I'm following you 100%, even like next level of like ecosystem. So, I mean, you're talking about being able to, hey, we do this microservice very well, or we do this very well. You do a game engine very well. You do AI very well. Like you can bolt on, yep. right? And um, API, all that stuff. But like, it, have you thought about it? Like, hey, from the bigger ecosystem, well, these things can all go together, interact with... Yeah. Interchange. Have you had with other company leaders conversations about that of like really creating that ecosystem? Yeah. And that's, that's like my personal priority is that ecosystem. Um, we had, like I mentioned earlier, we have these open standards that govern each of the pieces of the application. And there is one standard that kind of is what everything else bases on. And without getting super technical, there's a property in math called composition that basically allows you to say, Hey, I could bolt on this thing and have an app or I could bolt on this other thing and have an app. But what if I could bolt them on at the same time? And they're now like the sum of all of your parts. It's not just, I have, you know, a puzzle with one piece left open and you could put any piece in that spot. It's no, you can just keep putting the pieces together, together, together. Oh, you need AI in your app, grab an AI plugin. Oh, you need to see your network architecture. Well, here's a network visualization plugin. Oh, you've got CAD data. Here's your CAD plugin and you just keep bolting them together to make this ecosystem. And the powerful thing is that it, it doesn't have to be the product. A lot of the people we integrate with have their own products that sure. live off to the side that are specialty products. Because like, and, and you should. Uh, we have a partnership with a company called Falconry and they build like phenomenal AI um, products and they're aimed at data scientists. And if you're a data scientist, you're going to pull it up. You're going to see 200 charts and a whole bunch of statistics. You're going to feel right at home and like everything's at your fingertips. If you're not a data scientist, I'm going to show them to you and you're going to go, oh my God, what the hell is this? And so we kind of gave them a platform where it's like, hey, we oftentimes have 3D models and we have, you know, work processes and we have the work packages for replacing things and procedures and operational screens for things. And if you just made a high level integration, people could see a heat map of where the AI thinks there are going to be problems. And they might not get the 250 iterations of some algorithm that you're throwing at it. And they're not necessarily going to understand why you made that determination. But sometimes that little extra piece of situational awareness is all you need. And then the nice thing is it's linked back out to all of those other products. So like if I pull CAD data from uh, something like AutoCAD, it'll actually link you to AutoCAD and say, here's the source of the CAD data. So that when you're looking at something, you're like, oh, I've got the 3D models overlaid with AI, overlaid with documents. You're like, cool, I understand what I'm about to do, but like, I'm about to weld something onto a bulkhead. Please don't give me like a human-friendly visualization. Give me the ISO standard drawing so that I can go weld something and not kill someone. And they're like, oh, cool. Well, click here and it will give you the authoritative document with one click. Yeah, or you sure. could click here and get the authoritative AI model or the authoritative CAD or whatever you need. Yeah. It, it it almost like on maps where you can switch like uh, from yeah. street view to uh, like geographical. 
Yeah, but exactly. like, it, I, I think of in order to make something like that ecosystem happen, I mean, you have to have an overall fr- like framework that everyone agrees upon or, or that most people that want to be a part of that ecosystem agrees upon that they go by these standards so that in order for everyone, I think. Yeah, no, that's definitely have, true. And standards are very like interesting topic. This is something we were just talking about on the way over. Um, the standard of no standards. <laughs> because, yeah, you, you could have a standard that theoretically allows, like, anyone to do anything. But is that really a standard, or is that just where you started in the first place? So, like, knowing your audience and knowing the problem you're solving is vital in that. Because sometimes you want a standard that provides constraints and specifically tells people this will never happen. Because knowing that that won't happen is sometimes really important to know and you can like plan around that and make your application built around hey i don't have to worry about that edge case because the standard says it won't happen and then there are other standards that are a lot more open that are like no try to assume anything that can happen because we want people to integrate with us and so we kind of have this hierarchy of like hey if you're trying to drop a new app in it should be super super permissive but if you're trying to be a document viewer well a document viewer means something very specific and i need you to do the following things and if you can't do the following things you are not what we would call a document viewer you can still be an application you just fill a different niche in the ecosystem yeah yeah 100 percent. well i mean you mentioned a good use case there uh and for viewers that are trying to follow uh, a good a good <laughs> use case would be hey, you're trying to import some data into a database and you have a CSV versus a PDF. How many people import PDFs into a database? Well, they can, but it's going to be one <laughs> yep. one file. Uh, but if they're trying to import all the data in that, right, you want it in a different format or standard. Yeah, and you can also think about it like um, I can go onto the Android App Store and install a whole bunch of web browsers and – each one of those web browsers could theoretically just be a different like plugin, if you will. And it, I don't care if you're using Chrome or if you're using Firefox because they all conform to the same standard. They render web pages, they render HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Kind of doesn't matter. There are some applications uh, like Discord, for example, that typically renders like a web page view on an Android, but we wouldn't consider it a web browser because it's not quite as compatible. I can't go to other websites. It's still kind of following the standards, but it does enough different that you're like, no, you're not a web browser anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, knowing when to draw that line is important. Yeah. Have you gotten any feedback around that where other companies are like, yes, we're in. We want to. Yeah, there's been a lot of excitement around it. Um, like I mentioned, we've got uh, Unity and Momentum are the two big partnerships we have. We're also doing an integration with another company called Defense Unicorns, who is working on like a large language model type project. Um, We've got a handful of others. Let's see here. Yeah, we've definitely got a lot of excitement around it there. And it's fantastic (coughs) because it's actually new as of the end of August. So the open architecture has only been around for a couple of months. We've already got four or five people interested and we're in talks with quite a few other people as well. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, last last question before before we wrap up. If if for someone that um, is trying to do a startup, and especially if they're in the tech world, but even if they're not, what advice would you give them in those early years of the startup? Those early years are hard. Um, a lot of it is. Let's see here. So I we came from an agile background, and the whole point was. 
we would pair off with the customer. So we were building training software for surface Navy ships. I was like 16 at the time, so I definitely wasn't in the U.S. Navy at any point. Um, and I, none of the other founders were either. And so we're trying to like break into this market that we really have no right to break into. Like we, we just, we didn't, other than the fact that we all came from this other defense contractor, we can write code. And so what we did is we basically found the customer and we're like, hey, where do you guys operate out of? And they're like, oh, we operate out of this building. And we're like, great, we'll be there on Monday. We're going to just like, be there for two months basically and we showed up on the first day and we're like if we gave you this would that be useful and the guys are like no that's not useful to me what's wrong with you why would you think that's useful to me and you're like okay why isn't it useful to you and how could i change it how could i iterate And they're like well i guess if you did something like this that would actually really solve a big problem we have and we're like awesome and we like go back and prototype and come back we're like this is what you wanted right and he's like no, that's closer, but that's still not going to be useful at all. And it's just that iteration. And there's a lot of pain to it. And a lot of people shy away because it is painful to like throw an idea out and have it shot down, much less know that you're going to do that for, you know, a month. But there's also a lot that you learn out of it. It's kind of like the fast track to, I'm not going to say, it's not exactly the same as getting a degree, but it's, it's just the fast track to that of, I'm going to try all of these things. You're going to shoot me down. It's going to be rough and painful, but I'm going to learn it very quick. And where I end up is literally exactly where the customer wants me to end up because they helped me the whole way. So getting that customer feedback, that customer involvement is just huge. And there are some ways to like get around it if you have people on staff who are part of that field in that area. But by definition, if they're on your staff, they are no longer your customer and they're no longer working in that field, which means that unless you hired them yesterday, there's going to be some gap and that gap is constantly growing. Mm. Um, so just, you know, following those principles and trying to involve the customer as much as possible. And it's a huge tenet of agile, but you can do it in waterfall environments. You can do it in a lot of different environments. But I mean, I think the advice that uh, we were recently given as we've transitioned from more of a services company to a products-based company is hey, you're not transitioning from a service company to a products company. You are a solutions company, and you will still be a solutions company. Because at the end of the day, if you don't solve a problem, you go out of business. Bingo. That's, that's really what I, what I was hearing you say is figuring out from the customer what their big problems are and yes. solving it for them. It, I mean, if, if you if, – I, I see so many startups nowadays that they're like, I have this great idea. I'm like, maybe, <laughs> right? Like you're, you're not going to know until you get in front of a customer and give it to them and see if that really solves their problems. And if they're not raving about you to others, then man, maybe you, maybe you don't quite have it there. Some of the biggest things I think is, is going down paths and roads based off your own ideas and, and thoughts. Even if you have some data behind it, that doesn't necessarily mean that, Hey, it's it's gonna it, it's it's gonna work or whatever, or it's the right solution for them. You can have something that it's a better solution technically, but the customer doesn't quite get it, or it just doesn't feel familiar to them. And a more antiquated thing could actually be the better problem solver. And so, like, you always got to get in front of the customer. I feel like, yeah, no, hundred percent. And we see it a lot in our field, but there's there's a lot of people that mix up having a really cool tool with being able to solve a problem. Um, I had a dev come to me a little bit ago and they were basically like, Hey, 
I, f- I have this database and I was able to like restructure it and build this new type of database that let us put like 500 billion records into it. And he was like, isn't this awesome? And I was like, well, first and foremost, like, cool, congratulations. That's a huge amount of data. That's a huge amount to like orchestrate and deploy and actually keep straight. Secondly, what, what problem does this solve? <laughs> like, that's really cool that you could do that. And if you could put that in a context of this person has problem X and I need this to solve it, by all means, I'm in. But what problem does having a really big database solve? Because I could list a few problems that it creates. (laughs) (laughs) Now run a report off that. Yeah, right. (laughs) How do we back that up? (laughs) What I've heard from you, too, was that some of the some my experience has been some of the ones that really do well and and turn into really successful companies (coughs) start off with the customer. Yeah. And they start off, I mean, the quicker you get uh, your end user, your customer in there, and sometimes customer isn't necessarily end user, but the quicker you get to whoever your customer is and, and, and work out that solution just for them, just work it out for them and then figure out the next one. And it, it creates that momentum where you're figuring it out and you have that feedback loop. Yeah, 100%. And you brought up a really good point too, that split People forget about that, and it probably happens less in the private sector, but I can still imagine it happening. But especially in the uh, the government sector where we work, the customer is almost never the end user. We'll almost always get money from someone that says, go fix his problem, because his problem is like an enlisted person or an officer on the deck of a ship. Yeah. He doesn't have congressional money to give us to solve a problem. He has the problem, and he's the one who has to live with it. So recognizing that split is really important. And then, I mean, at that point, you do have two customers because if I solve his problem, but the guy paying the bills doesn't realize I've solved his problem, they're not going to keep me around. And on the flip side, I could, you know, do the scumbag thing and look like I'm solving his problem and keep collecting the money, but I'm not really solving his problem. And that will come back to bite you at some point. Um, So knowing what both of them want to get out of it and then just giving them what they need to make you succeed is super important. Second thing that you said, and that was learning. Like, if there's one thing I think since the day I quit Gaffin House was that every day I learned exponentially than having just a full-time job that I worked. Yeah. And you have to learn. You're forced to. You're forced to make – nothing happens unless you make it happen as a founder, co-founder. 100%. So you just – it's a constant – if there's a day that goes by that I haven't learned something, still to this day, I'm, I'm – I'm a little, I feel like I haven't really worked or like I'm not doing something right. Yep. Yeah, no, you, you definitely have to be tapped into that. Like go find newsletters, go find books and just constantly be trying to get that source of information. Um, awareness of your environment goes along with learning. And that's also a huge like business standard practice is know the environment you're operating in. And the only way you're going to know that is if you're learning because the environment's changing every day. Yeah. One thing it was a lot of startups, especially in the tech world, they think, hey, they're overnight successes that they just blew up. I mean, like even the biggest ones out there, I mean, dude, it's been years in the making. There's years behind it. There's years getting to that place. Now there's sometimes there's these critical points like you land a huge deal or you get some recognition with DOD or something like that that yeah. excel, like accelerate you. But like still – it's a, like, yeah, up to that point, it's a grind. You hear, like, similar stories, like Airbnb, even. It was like, well, those guys were, like, 
going out to the East Coast and going up to people's, like, apartments and being like, can we do this with your place, like, in person? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, they didn't just make this thing and everyone was like, I'm in. Yeah. It's been, yeah, it's it's insane. I've, I've recently learned the same thing. I dabble in YouTube for a little bit and there were a few channels that I came across and I was like, wow, this just blew up out of nowhere. This is insane. And then you start digging into it and you're like, oh, no, this person's doing it for a decade, and they just had persistence. They had a backlog of videos, and eventually one of them will kick it off, and half the time the video that kicked it off wasn't even the video that, like, was recent. Like, they made it, and then two years later it became relevant and started something off. Mm -hmm. And tech can be the same way. You can make something, and just because it doesn't go somewhere today doesn't mean that it won't go somewhere tomorrow because the landscape's constantly changing, and a tool that might not be a good fit today might become a good fit because AI might open new problems or some new threat might come up or a new problem exists, and mm-hmm. it's constantly changing. So the more that you can, you know, if, if you haven't found that niche, just keep your mind open and keep reevaluating the old tools that you have and try to keep bringing them into the fold because the more surface area that you have, the greater your odds of succeeding are. Yeah, there's a concept out of, uh, I think it's called Smart Cuts. Um, It's Shane something. Uh, It's a book that talks um, a lot about, you know, think not not negating hard work, but making sure your work is really smart and doing things um, wisely. And it's about, he gives these two examples. One is the dude who saw like a double rainbow on YouTube or something like that. And his like, his, uh, that video got, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions of views, all that stuff. But that's where it ended. And the other girl in the scenario, she was doing makeup tutorials and she had years and years worth of all these makeup tutorials. And then she did one, I think it was on Lady Gaga or something like that. (coughs) And it went viral. And when that one went viral, they all came into her like lead capture net and she had a system in place to capture all that momentum. And so the concept was, you know, potential energy. And so building up that potential so that when you do hit it, having the big vision, but doing the daily grind to build that potential. Because when you do hit some sort of viral moment, that you can capture it. I love that analogy with potential energy. I think that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it just hits it on the head. If you put out one product and it immediately succeeds, you're almost at a loss. Because now your next move is, I have to build an entire new product from scratch. But if you build four products and the fifth one hits, well, now you've got a whole lot of fuel you can actually use to sustain it. Um, Everyone says, you know, they want to just explode overnight. But I'll remind you that it's the steady burn that got us to the moon. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Awesome. Well, thank you, John Wargo. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Mike Devlin. I don't even know why I was here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, out. Perfect. Nice. How nerdy was that, Jay?